All right, let's start today with a, a word of prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us and for the instructions in your word. I thank you for the way that you've delivered them to us in a, a way that's meaningful and uh, impactful for our lives. I pray now for your spirit to bless our time together and help us to, to think through these things in a way that's profitable and helpful. I ask, Father, that you'll be with those who are sick and suffering right now, that you will relieve them. I ask that you'll give wisdom to our leaders and those who are in authority. And Father, I pray for our homes and our families, that your people will honor you wherever they are. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to pick up on the topic that we've been dealing with for the last few weeks, and that is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, talking about widows. 1 Timothy chapter 5, talking about widows. So I'm going to read, uh, let's say, verses uh, 9 through uh, 16. Uh, we'll read verses 9 through 16 uh, in 1 Timothy 5 and then see if we can't tackle the, the text. Okay, so 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 9. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, but refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, and give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. Okay, so that's the text uh, that I'm going to be looking at today, that we're going to be looking at on Sunday morning. If you're watching this video at home, uh, you're able to follow along this way, uh, but uh, hopefully you'll be able to return to us soon. So we're going to follow a, a simple pattern here. Uh, three points. Uh, first, explanation. Second, suggestion. Third, command. Now that's the approach I think the Apostle Paul is taking in this text. He's going to explain something, then he's going to issue a suggestion, which is not the same as a command. And then finally, he will end on a command. Now, the explanation takes place in verses 11 and 12. It says, But refuse the younger widows. And we say, refuse them from what? Uh, what is Paul explaining? He is going to explain why younger widows should be excluded from the widows list. Now, if you don't know what the widows list was, you need to back up and go look at the message that we previously recorded on the widows list. You need to, you need to read from uh, verses 9 through 10 and understand that there was a, a ministry group Okay, a ministry position in the church in Ephesus at least. It's not commanded elsewhere in Scripture. It's not ordained elsewhere in Scripture. But apparently in Ephesus and perhaps other of the early churches, there was a ministry group uh, identified as widows who were over the age of 60 who had exemplified just a, a tremendous level of, of, uh, of, of good Christian conduct in their marriage and with their children. 
And these widows who were over 60 uh, were people who had already lived. These were women who had already lived beyond the life expectancy uh, for women in their day and age. The life expectancy was like in the, in the upper 50s, I think 57, 58, something like that. So they had already beaten the life expectancy average. Um, they're 60 years old, and they had the, now the opportunity to essentially sign up for or be, be admitted to the widow's list. And, and again, there were qualifications for this, and there was a ministry involved with it. Uh, we don't have the details of what the ministry uh, involvement looked like, but you can imagine that it would be going in and out of the home, helping uh, young women, helping women with children, helping teach, uh, helping uh, uh, guide and give wisdom and insight into necessary situations. I mean, how many times do we need help looking after our children, even if it's just everything from a temporary babysitter to, to real questions we have about how we should handle difficult problems in our home. You know, uh, these were widows who had demonstrated by meeting all these qualifications, uh, exemplary commitment to Jesus Christ in their own marriage and with their kids. And so now they were going to serve the church in that official capacity and be provided for by the church. So Paul says specifically here, refuse the younger widows from being a part of that group. Now, it stands to reason that certainly there would be women uh, who married and who, while they were still very young, perhaps 20s, maybe even 30s, while they were very young, their husband dies. Obviously, that's, that's a, a, an awful tragedy. Uh, and it stands to reason that there would be women in that position who they too had exemplified just outstanding Christian character. And they too might, might uh, have exemplified uh, good righteous works. And now, in the grief after their husband passing, they might be evaluating, what do I do now with my life? And Paul says, as you're counseling and you're working with these women who've gone through this traumatic experience, don't just admit them to the widow's list, because I don't think it's hard for any married person who's been in a good and honorable marriage to try to think through all the feelings, the emotions that they would have if their husband were to die or their wife were to die. It's not hard to imagine someone in that position saying, "You know what? I'm just I'm never going to marry again. I'll never have what I I'll never have what I had before. It'll never replace the loss of my husband. I I don't have any feelings for for a new partnership right now. I, I don't even know how I would go about that. So I I know that I don't want to remarry. So why not just just sign up to be on this widow's list and and dedicate the rest of my life to single ministry service. In other words, I'll dedicate the rest of my life to singleness and for the purpose of serving Jesus. I'll do that. And Paul says, that's not a good idea. Don't do that for younger widows. And, and I call this the explanation because he's explaining what he said in verse 9. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into this number. And, and so here his explanation. He says this, For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Now let's be clear at the outset. He's not saying refuse care to the younger widows. Obviously, we've already established in the passage the church had the obligation to care for younger widows. So he's not saying don't care for younger widows, tell them to go out there and get married and have a new husband care for them. No, no, no. The church was to care for all widows who were truly alone. Now, if a widow had family members that were around, it was their responsibility to provide for the needs of, of widows in their, in their family, in their even extended family, in, in all that might be considered their house, right? But, but 
This is not saying don't provide for widows who are under the age of 60. It's saying, yes, provide for them, but don't allow them to commit themselves to singleness for perhaps decades for the rest of their life. Maybe if they're younger, perhaps decades of life. Don't allow them to make a hasty commitment to singleness because they might grow wanton against Christ. In other words, they might find that this commitment to, to Jesus Christ that they've made specifically in singleness isn't satisfying. And then they, they find desires that they didn't expect later on, perhaps even 10 years later on, desires begin to surface in them that, that they certainly didn't expect in the aftermath of losing their husband. And now fulfilling those desires by getting married would require them to go back on a lifelong commitment that they made uh, to singleness. So he's saying this is a bad situation. Don't let young widows make a lifelong commitment to singleness. Uh, save that for women who are over the age of 60. And the reason why I think that this widow's list ministry was working in the home and with children and with young wives and, and, and around husbands, the reason why I think that the widows served that way is because that would require singleness. You would not want someone who uh, was an eligible young woman, you know, uh, you would not want an eligible young woman working in, in the home intimately with, you know, a man and his wife and working through marital troubles. You wouldn't want to have, number one, the, the idea of perhaps impropriety. You wouldn't want to introduce, you know, one woman replacing another woman into a home. You wouldn't want to introduce any of those possibilities or ideals. So working inside this widow's ministry would require singleness. Don't let a young woman hastily jump into that. So uh, this is not excluding widows from care. That's the first thing we have to say by way of an explanation. All widows should be cared for. It's excluding them from a rest of life commitment to single, single life for the sake of ministry. And I'll describe it to you this way, what Paul is saying here. Christ is not meant to be in competition with marriage. And setting things up that way is a bad idea. In other words, what we don't want to do is arrange a battle where we have on the one hand a commitment that I have made for the rest of my life to be single for the ministry of Jesus versus my desires for love and work in the family made possible through marriage. These things are not meant to be opposed to one another. Okay, It's not meant to be Jesus or marriage. And setting up a situation where a young widow has made a commitment to singleness for the sake of ministry to Jesus might result in, as time passes, a competition of that commitment to Christ versus these desires which are not evil. It's not evil to have a desire to, to have a family and to be loved and to love another person. It's not e evil to desire those, to, to desire intimacy. So we shouldn't manufacture a situation where we have a commitment to Christ versus a commitment to marriage. It shouldn't be, that's a bad idea. And, and if you set that up, then you're setting up a situation where someone maybe starts off very well in a commitment of singleness to Christ but then finds unexpected desires for marriage and for, and for having children and for having a family and for being loved and loving, loving another. 
those desires come along and now you've got this competition and you try to cling to this commitment that you've made to singleness for Christ and yet that commitment is not satisfying all of these other desires that you have, desires that, by the way, are God-given. Not, they're not evil desires. And so, as he says here, the person might begin to grow wanton against Christ. In other words, dissatisfied with Jesus, because Jesus is not fulfilling all of the desires that they have for love and marriage and partnership in life and, 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 and raising a family and physical intimacy. A commitment to Jesus of this magnitude was never meant to fulfill those desires. We shouldn't set it up to where it's either or, okay? Because as, as all of us who are married and Christians know, it can be Jesus and, okay? It can be Jesus and a commitment to Christ and a faithful marriage. It doesn't have to be a commitment to Christ or marriage. And so Paul's saying it's a bad idea to set it up that way. We need to understand, I think, the theology behind the songs that, that we sing, like All I Have is Christ. All I Have is Christ is a wonderful song, but it can give a misconception that through Jesus, we can have a fulfillment to all of the other you know, desires and longings that we have in life. Or, or we might get enough satisfaction in Jesus to where none of the other things in life matter. That is not what the song is meant to portray. Okay, the idea of all I have is Christ is not meant to diminish the value of everything else in the world so that it's totally insignificant and we don't need any of it. That, that's, that's just preposterous. Obviously, we need Christ, we also need food. We need Christ, we also need shelter. You know, we need Christ, we also need love and relationship. It's not Jesus, so forget everything else. It's you know, the, the theology behind all I have is Christ is more complex than that. When we sing all I have is Christ, we are not trying to put Christ in competition with everything else in the world. God gives us wonderful gifts and joys in this world, and those gifts are meant to be enjoyed and praised. And, and even w when we enjoy these gifts, and if we offer them, you know, praise to God for them, if we glorify God with them, then, then we are doing something righteous with these gifts so that God is glorified as we enjoy them. The theology behind songs like All I Have is Christ is that once we used to be sinners who were bound for hell. And at that point we were, and this is a lyric in the song, indifferent to the cost of the way that we were living. We were in a, a helpless state, but God has led us to the cross. Again, a lyric in the song. God has, has led us to the cross where we see the love of God displayed, and it's Jesus, and He is suffering in our place. And when we, by faith, accept that eternal forgiveness made possible by what Jesus did at the cross, now everything in the world that God gives us is grace. That's the idea here. My marriage is grace. All I have is Christ. You know, everything now is grace to me. My marriage is grace. It's a gift of God to be enjoyed because it no longer comes to me under the shadow of eternal condemnation and death. Instead, my marriage is a blessing by God. I can build eternal reward in my marriage. I can glorify God in my marriage. I can live righteously and holy in my marriage. So my marriage now is graced because of Christ. All I have is Christ fueling my marriage. My children are grace. 
they no longer you know, come to me under the shadow of death. They, number, they no longer come to me under the shadow of hell. But I can enjoy them under the promise of God's strength and honor as I struggle and I work to raise them with God's wisdom. They're, they're, they're a gracious gift from God. Everything from my food, my finances, my time, and my energy. These aren't meaningless material, material things. Okay, these aren't meaningless worldly things. These aren't things that merely provide temporary satisfaction, but will ultimately leave me empty and unfulfilled and wanting more. Through my relationship with Jesus, which I now have, these are gracious gifts of God to be enjoyed with the blessings of my Heavenly Father upon me. The song says, But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you, God, looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld at the cross God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now, all I know, everything in the world, every good gift around me, all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. So it doesn't mean that everything else in the world is meaningless and stupid and to be discarded and cast off. All I have is Christ means the opposite of that. We're no longer destined for eternal hell, for eternal wrath. Now everything in life, all that I know is grace. Life now has purpose and meaning even in the most simplistic things because of Christ. My life is not destined for eternal destruction. Now, that used to be the case before salvation, and if that is the case, if my life is destined for eternal destruction, nothing in this world ultimately matters. It's dust to dust and ashes to ashes. I have an appointment with eternal judgment. It's all temporary joy or temporary pain on the way to eternal damnation. But now, now that I have by faith accepted the forgiveness of God, made possible at the cross by Jesus, now everything in the world has a blessed purpose. So, let's not put Christ in competition with the gracious gifts of God, like marriage. Don't do that. You know, that's, what, that's the idea of, of the text here. That's what Paul is saying. Avoid a lifelong commitment to singleness that would require you to forego the grace of marriage in order to be faithful to God because that would only lead to a misleading sense of dissatisfaction and emptiness with Jesus. And friends, Jesus is not dissatisfying. Jesus makes everything in life sweeter and meaningful, even the pain, even suffering. Jesus makes it meaningful because it comes with eternal purpose, eternal reward, eternal merit, right? So don't set up a situation where it's Jesus or marriage, which is in itself a gracious gift of God. That's what Paul means here. All right. Now, uh, second part of the sermon, okay? It, it's a suggestion, and it's, it's very simple. It comes to us uh, here in verse 13. Paul writes, And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, th saying things that they ought not. So therefore I desire that younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Okay, so this is Paul's suggestion. He is suggesting that uh, women remarry, they have children, if they're younger widows, they remarry, they have children, and they, and they, and they, they uh, function as they were uh, meant to be, as they at one point 
in their earlier marriage hope to be uh, in the home. Now, Paul is giving this suggestion uh, because he has already seen some widows, frankly, with very little to do in their life. No children, no work, and he has seen that lead to sin and a life of idleness and ultimately lead to pain and suffering and destruction. So this is his suggestion. It's not a command, okay? This is not a command. He's not saying, if there are younger widows in your church, don't support them, don't provide for them. Tell them, hey, look, now you have to go out and get married or else you're doing something wrong. It's, that's, not, that's not what this is, okay? This is a desire for Paul. It's a suggestion for Paul. He thinks this would be better. We need to hear suggestions and counsel from godly people who have demonstrated their godly character, who love God and who care for us. We need to hear godly wisdom, and that's what Paul is offering. Um, the idea that he would focus on widows here is pretty basic. If you were a widower, if you were a man, your job, as we've already discussed in the text, was to go out and to provide for your family. And then your wife dies. And th there, there is tremendous heartache and suffering in that, I'm sure. I praise God that I've never felt that. Your wife dies. But your situation should not be one of, I can no longer provide for myself. I can no longer pay the bills. Because you were out in society laboring and working. In the Roman Empire, you, you, it was your job to provide and to go and work. Okay, So you're not, because of the death of your wife, you're not put in a position of economic suffering and economic need. A widow, on the other hand, in the Roman world, was in a position of economic suffering and economic need. And we can say, well, I don't like that. I think the Romans should have been more fair and benevolent and given women opportunities to do, to do work on the other side. Yeah, we can say all of that, but that's just not the reality of the situation. Okay, That's not the world that they lived in. It's one thing to say, well, yeah, in an ideal secular society, there would be plenty of work that women could do to go out and provide for themselves in the event that their husband died. Yeah, that may be ideal, but that's not the situation that they lived in. The reality of the situation is... They were in a, a position of economic weakness, of need, okay? And, and so suggestions and advice from Paul have to take that into account or else they're not very good advice, okay? If, if you're trying to help somebody with advice and counsel, you can't give them advice and counsel based on an ideal world where everything is, is orchestrated to work out for them in the situation that they're in. That's not the world that we live in. Advice, suggestions have to be made in, in, with a sort of practical mindset here. And the reality was, in the Roman world, if you were a widow, for in most cases, you were in a position of economic need. And the Roman secular world was not interested in your, in your skills and in your ability to provide something economically in terms of business. Okay? For, for, now, there, there are exceptions to that, of course. But we're, we're talking about you know, generalities here so that the advice is most practical. Okay, what, what is Timothy likely to come upon in a church? He's likely to come upon widows whose husbands have died and left them in, in a position of need and uncertainty. And now what do they do? And if they were to commit themselves to singleness for the rest of their life on this idea of the widow's list, one of the things that Paul had seen it lead to is a sense of idleness, a sense of okay, I'm going to serve the Lord now, but what do I do to fill my time? And this idleness had led to bad things. This, he describes it wandering about from house to house, 
gossiping and, and meddling in, in other people's affairs and business. He didn't see this as a good thing, either for the widow or for the people whom she was involved with. Idleness is not commended to us as a, as a good thing or a helpful thing. Okay, so now look, we look at this in the world that we live in now, and the world that we live in now is much more accommodating for women uh, who are of all ages to go out and, and work and to, and to provide for some of their basic needs. There are, are women all throughout our church who are working and providing for needs. So I don't see this as some kind of prohibition for, for young women that, hey, don't go out and get a job and work to provide for yourself. I don't think that's how Paul meant it. He's talking about widows who acknowledged they're in a, a period of economic weakness, economic uncertainty, and so they're considering making a lifelong commitment to singleness, this widow's list. You know, by that very consideration, they're admitting that they're going to have trouble to go out and provide for themselves in the long term. He's saying this isn't a good idea. So what's the alternative? His advice, look, if you've already acknowledged in your previous marriage that you have a desire and a capacity to love and to, and to support and to manage and to work within a, a family context, don't give up on that. Continue to, to pursue that. And it doesn't mean don't mourn and don't take a time of mourning. Uh, and it doesn't mean rush out there and marry the first, you know, the first guy on two legs to come walking around. That's not what it means. But it means you should not seal your heart off and say, I will never love a husband again. I will never have children. He's saying you should, you, should, you should remain open to those things because I think, I desire, that it would be good for you uh, to, to, to carry on with the same course that you were previously in pursuit of before your husband died. And you may not see how that's possible right now. You know, that may come on the other side of a lot of pain and mourning and a lot of suffering. And again, he's not saying the church shouldn't provide or should, should you know, be done with widows who are, who are going through you know, what it's like to be single and on the other side of, of marriage when a, a spouse has died. But this is his suggestion. Um, and by the way, this is not a way of singling out women. If you, if you were to read from 1 Corinthians 7, I want to read it to you now. I want you to, to see just how... Um, just, just how equally Paul speaks to men and women on this subject. Now, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Listen to this. Concerning the things which you wrote me, the Corinthian church had wrote Paul asking about stuff like this. He said, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. He addresses it from both sides. In other words, there are some people who don't feel you know, sexual attraction, sexual need the same way as others. And they're able to be free from, you know, the intimacy in marriage. And that's okay with them. That They don't grow wanton against, you know, uh, the idea that they're single or alone. But for the majority of people, and this is what Paul is acknowledging, uh, sexual desire exists and it's not an evil thing. And so he's saying, rather than, than some commitment to singleness leading to sexual sin, let a husband have a wife and a wife love a husband. Okay, so he deals on both sides of the aisle. It's not just, hey, husband, you have sexual sin, so go find a wife. And he says the same thing about women. Hey, you're vulnerable to sexual temptation too. Go find a husband. Okay, and then he says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her and the wife to her husband. Again, he's dealing on both sides of the sexes here. He's not singling one particular sex out. Verse 4, the wife 
in a marriage relationship, does not have sole authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, all of the feminists get upset. Uh, you mean the, my husband owns my body? But then the next verse, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. He's dealing on both sides of the sexes here. He's not singling one out. And he says, do not deprive one another except with consent for a specific time so that you yourselves may give yourself to prayer and fasting and then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Again, this is advice. It's not a command. For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God. Marriage is a gift. Paul was single. He said it would be easier because you'd have less you know, earthly obligations if everybody could be single, but each has a gift from God. Marriage is a gift from God. So what he's saying here is not, you know, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, well, it's dealing with a widow because a widow was particularly exposed to economic vulnerability. His advice isn't different. He, he, say, he would say the same thing to a man. A man who is a widower, you know, should pursue marriage. And rather than burn with passion and grow wanton against Christ with some false commitment to singleness, pursue marriage. Don't, don't, you know, don't, see, don't think that there's some higher calling in, in a commitment to singleness. He's dealing fairly here. So we've covered a few things in this suggestion. Number one, this is not heartless. It's not anti-mourning. Okay, it's, it's practical. Number two, it's not a command, it's a suggestion. Number three, he's not threatening to cut young widows off from financial support. And number four, he's offering a suggestion of hope. Remarrying after the death of a spouse is not inferior to a first marriage. It's not inferior. It is, to my thinking, one of the most precious and loving things that a person can do is to marry someone whose spouse has died or to be open to remarrying a partner who loves you and who is in need of a husband or a wife on the other side of your own suffering through the loss of a spouse. It, it, is, a, it is fundamentally the same giving of yourself to another person that was so precious in the first marriage. And, and yes, it's marked by the tragedy of death, and death is a tragedy. Death is never talked about as a, as a oh, just a natural and fine thing of life in the Bible. Death is, the, is, the, is the, the judgment of God against sin among a fallen race of human beings. Death is a tragedy. Loving on the other side of death in a selfless and giving way, that's a commendable thing. You don't have to read very much of the Bible, very much of the Old Testament, very much of the narrative of Jesus Christ to see the importance and the, and the validity of marriages on the other side of the loss of a spouse. It's a sweet thing, and God can work in those marriages. I say this as a married man, and, I, and I'll be honest. I cannot imagine being married to anyone else but Allison. And it's right that I feel that way, because Allison is my wife. She's still alive, and I'm still alive. I should be wholly committed to her, and I am. And she should be wholly committed to me. It, you know, it wouldn't be right for, for her to start talking with me about, hey, you know, maybe when you're biting the dust someday, I'll, I'll marry somebody else. That's not right, okay? But if I were to die, and someday I will, it would not diminish her faithful love and service to God and faithful love and service to me. It would not diminish her devotion to me or our family during my lifetime for her to marry again. 
if I'm alive and she tries to marry somebody else, then, then we're going to have a problem, okay? But after I've died, she is free. And that's also, the, that's the final instruction from 1 Corinthians 7. You know, at, when your spouse dies, you're free uh, to remarry. And should the Lord present her the opportunity, and this is not an easy thing for a husband to say, but this is important that I say this. Should the Lord present her the opportunity to love and support and to help prosper and grow the life of another man the way that she has been so crucial to my own life and growth, why should I have a right to be opposed to that after she has so honorably fulfilled her marriage commitments to me when I was alive? Why should I have some fundamental resistance to my wife being such a blessing as the wife of another man after I die, as she's been to me. Why would I want to deprive her of the blessing of a husband out of some, you know, predisposition to pride or envy or... When I die, I'm not going to be afflicted with pride or envy or jealousy anymore. That's the fallen man. Those, those sinful feelings are gone when I die. So... I know that if I die, I'm not going to struggle up in heaven with feelings of jealousy and envy if my wife remarries and anger and frustration and malice. I'm not going to deal with those feelings if my wife remarries because she will be free to do so. It, she's to and I will see that in heaven in a way that is difficult to see now. Okay, It's difficult for me to ever think that I would possibly be okay with my wife being married to someone else. Because I'm only seeing it from the perspective I'm in right now. But I know and by faith I, I trust and believe that is not how I will feel once I die. And I'm freed from sin. And I'm freed from all these feelings. Okay? Right now I feel jealous. You know, if my wife, you know, pays a certain level of compliment to somebody else. Well, doesn't she feel that way about me? We're watching, you know, something on TV. And, and if she thinks that guy's handsome, well, doesn't she think I'm handsome? I mean, I'm vulnerable to those petty feelings right now. So, of course, from this world's perspective, I'm going to have all kinds of concerns about my wife remarrying someone if I die. But, but when I'm freed from all of the pettiness of sinful nature, I'm not going to feel that way because she wouldn't be doing anything wrong. In fact... Her remarrying after I die might be her doing something very honorable and very right. We should be careful not to say anything that gives the impression that remarried widows or widowers are somehow doing something wrong, or that those second marriages are somehow lesser marriages, or somehow violations of the first marriage, or somehow reveal a lack of commitment to a first spouse who has died and gone on to be with the Lord. That's just not true, and it, it, there's nothing in the Bible that gives us license to feel that way. And so, like everything else, we need to bring our feelings under the instruction of God's Word, okay? Remarriage, on the other side of the death of a spouse, can be a wonderful blessing uh, to a person's life, to children's lives, and, and an honorable thing before God. Finally here, Paul, Paul is going to end with a command, okay? Uh, verse 16, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that they may relieve those who are really widows. Now, this verse is a command specifically to women. In the New King James, it says, If any believing man or woman has widows, 
But this verse and and you know the New King James is adding the idea of believing man. Okay, the, the verse is directed towards women. Okay, and the ESV, uh, the ASB, other translations acknowledge that it's it. This is directed towards women. Now that doesn't mean that a man is not on the hook to provide for widows. It just means that uh, we've already dealt with that in verse eight. Verse eight says, "But if if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household." He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul has already made it clear that a man has a responsibility to provide for widows. What he's commanding in verse 16 is that women also have a responsibility to provide for those who are widows in their household. And this is an important command because if you can imagine, imagine this, okay, if let's say that, that I were to die and my Let's say that my, uh, my wife was in need of care. Now, my wife is a strong and capable woman. I'm not at all certain that she would be in need of any care, but let's say she is in need of economic care. Okay, she really needs economic care. The people whom the Bible would call to care for my wife, assuming my son isn't old enough to do it, would be my children, and then you know my brother and my father. They would need to step in and, and offer care and support. Okay, and I'm, I have no doubt that my father, that my brother would do that if my children were not of age to do it. But, you know, my brother and my father being willing to step in and, and take my wife into their home to, to, to provide for her and care for her, that would not be a unilateral thing in their household. Okay, I have a sister-in-law and I have a mother. And bringing another woman inside the home, while it's the honorable thing to do, it's important that, that wives also understand the command, that women also understand the command, they have to care for other widows too. Okay, because you, it, you can imagine that there might be tension or conflict or difficulty with you know, a woman inviting another woman inside the home to be cared for by her and her husband. Okay, and, and so Paul is making this command, look, you cannot shirk responsibilities when it comes to providing for widows, and that applies to men and women. They, they, they need to be provided for. Okay, this is, a, this is one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> this is something that Jesus said was absolutely you know, inexcusable to not provide for one's own household. Paul has said it very specifically to men already, and now he says it very specifically to women. So we have, by review, we have an explanation of not letting younger widows onto the widow's list, a suggestion that younger widows be open to remarriage and even pursue remarriage when the time is past of mourning and, they, and their eyes are open to, to what God can still do and God can still use them as a wife and as a mother, Okay, that they should be open to that. And then a command that they too are responsible. Women are, are also responsible to take care of widows. And you, know, you don't have to get very far with... Uh, the story of, of Ruth to, to see that uh, come into play. Okay, now, we have talked a lot in 1 Timothy chapter 5 about death from the perspective of those who are left behind. And uh, one of the things that I like to say is, um, you know, I, I tell this to my children, um, this world is going to end one of two ways for you you are either going to find yourself burying the people who you love most in the world or they are going to bury you. And uh, this is an important thing to meditate on. You know, this past week we've had a, a number of, of health you know, issues in our own family 
And, you know, my kids had to go take COVID-19 tests and thankfully they tested negative and they don't have COVID-19. And then they took strep tests and they don't have strep. They're just dealing with, we're just dealing with sickness, okay? But when we found out that my youngest, Evelyn, who's five years old, was going to have to go take a COVID-19 test, you know, it reasonably made some of my older kids very scared because Evelyn's the baby of the family. She's five. She's, to think of her dealing with some deathly illness, even if we have every anticipation that she would be okay, it's still scary. It's still intimidating. And one of the things that, that it, it did, it provided me the opportunity to remind them of the very thing that I'm, that I'm telling all of you now. One way or another, uh, and I, I said this to my oldest two daughters, one way or another, you are going to bury your mother and your father and your siblings, or they are going to bury you. You're going to be at those funerals, or else they're going to be at your funeral. Suffering and death is in the works for all of us. Um, every once in a while, you'll see a public figure like a, a comedian or an athlete or a, a talk show host. And, you know, normally their job is to provide such a positive face on things and such a happy spin on life. And they're trying to entertain people, a lot of these public figures. And so they don't talk about death and they don't reveal their true feelings. And they don't, their lives can look glamorous because they don't show the suffering part of it. But every once in a while, uh, you'll get a glimpse of it. That You'll see them at, you know, a funeral giving a eulogy. Or you'll see something that they write or that they've written or they've said about the death of a loved one. And, and it's so impactful to me because we, we, it's so easy to lose sight. We are vulnerable. We are susceptible to losing sight of the fact that this world is going to end in death. And this chapter is focused on the very practical needs of those who are left behind when a loved one dies. But the overwhelming majority of God's Word is focused on the eternal need of you and I who are going to die. The Bible is focused on the perspective, not of just the widow, but the husband of the widow who is now dead and faces either eternal life with God or eternal judgment in the condemnation of hell. Jesus came to this world because of this crisis, this human crisis, that we will one day die and give an account to our Creator. And when we die, when we ourselves face the tragedy of human existence, that is death, we are going to be in a far more pivotal place. We are going to be at a far more pivotal point in our life than even those who are left behind to mourn us and to suffer that loss. We are going to be on the verge of either experiencing eternal reward or eternal and total loss suffering under the judgment of God for our sin forever, paying for every false word, every lie, every evil thought, every evil action, every adulterous thought, every adulterous relationship, every immoral behavior, every curse word, and all of the penalty of it put on our shoulders forever. Because though we were extended an invitation into the eternal family of God and an eternal inheritance of God, Though we were invited to a life of righteousness and a life of prosperity, though we were invited into a redeemed relationship between Creator and creation, we rejected that 
and we chose instead self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment uh, and selfishness which ultimately led to all this other morality. Lies, deceptions, evil, manipulations, selfishness, envy, lust, covetousness. All of these things will either face eternal punishment by God in hell or they're dealt with through the only means possible, forgiveness at the cross. God has extended to you a way to wipe off all of the evil, all sexual sin, all violent sin, all thought sin, all sins with words, all sins with actions, all sins with deceptions and manipulations. Every time I've been a lousy husband and a lousy father and a lousy son and a lousy friend and a lousy citizen, every time I have done immorally, God has offered a single point of forgiveness for all of it by which the whole load of it might simply be washed away from our record. Not by something that we have done because we are unqualified to do any righteous deed to make up for all of that, but instead by something that He has done because He is qualified to offer Himself as the perfect righteous sacrifice to atone for, ten, for sin. He has offered to die, and again, death is a penalty of sin. He has offered to take the penalty of sin for us because He Himself, Jesus, did not deserve that penalty. So He is uniquely qualified to stand in our place and pay the price of our sin because He Himself does not deserve the death that He's willing to embrace for us. That's what we see at the cross. At the cross we see a sinless Son of God capable of paying the price for sinners who deserve death. At the cross we see Jesus' death and the wrath of God satisfied as the payment of sin that would lead to our death. At the cross we can be forgiven and have eternal life with God, no longer with the relationship of judge and convict, which is how we stand to meet Him when we die right now. Before Christ, before salvation, we are convicted criminal, convicted lawbreaker, meeting eternal righteous judge, awaiting eternal condemnation and sentencing. But through Jesus and the forgiveness of our sins, we stand before God as righteous, not a righteousness of our own. We will still sin in this world, but, but sin that is forgiven. And so when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of the one who stood in our place, of Jesus. And now we can appeal to God as a son would to a father instead of as a convict would to a righteous judge. Now we come to God as righteous son to righteous father instead of evil criminal before righteous God. We've been awfully concerned with the state of those who are left behind when someone dies in 1st Timothy chapter 5. We ought to be eternally concerned with the state of the one who dies and stands before God and gives an account for their life. I have no defense in and of myself for the way that I've lived. I'm a sinner. I deserve God's punishment. You're a sinner. You deserve God's punishment. You don't deserve God's love. You don't deserve God's blessing. And you don't deserve eternal life.
who deserve condemnation. Jesus died on the cross to embrace what we deserve, death, and to give us what we don't deserve, grace, eternal life, an adopted relationship to a Heavenly Father. You need to embrace that by faith, by faith in Jesus, committing yourself to Him, trusting Him with your life, or else when you die, you will be condemned and damned to eternal hell. And it won't be evil of God to do that. It will be just. That's what we deserve. Praise God, that's not what we're condemned to through Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you now. Father, I pray for anyone who might see this video this week, someday, maybe long after I'm dead, and be confronted with the eternal reality because most of what I have to say in my day-to-day -day life will be of no value to someone. I can't say anything that I can imagine would be remotely valuable in and of myself a hundred years from now. I'm just not that smart. I'm not that wise. But in your word is eternal wisdom. And you have a heart to save sinners, to redeem them. So Father, I ask that you'll use this message to save sinners. That you'll use this message to bring people into a right relationship with you by trusting in the forgiveness offered to them at the sacrifice of your sinless Son, Jesus, who died on the cross. By trusting in the eternal life offered to them through his resurrection. By trusting the promises that you've made to those who believe. Give us now a heart of faith. Help us to believe. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.